We've all heard the phrase, that kind of thing doesn't happen in our town. But here on Midwest Murder, we will shatter that false reality. In fact, it happens more often than we know. And sometimes the details of the most horrific crimes that happen in our neighborhoods are lost in the back pages of newspapers, forgotten on our news channels, and eventually erased over time. We're here to talk about murder, diving into some of the most controversial cases in Midwest history. This show will not shy away from the morbid details of these horrific events and the often ugly truths behind them. What you will hear is a detailed timeline of events, perspectives from those closely involved, and analysis by experts. What you will feel is the darkness that surrounds each story, the innocence lost by the victims, and hopefully the justice that was ultimately delivered. Jonah Lanto. Don Palumbo. Hi. Hi. We're in small town America. It feels good. I, I love it. I yeah. love it here. It's fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Velva. We're coming at you from the Lariat. Huge thanks to everyone who takes time out of their busy life to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and Spotify, good, bad, whatever it may be. It, we're entertained by it. We're, we're encouraged by it. Sometimes it stings, but that's all right. It we like, a bit. Yeah. yeah. We, we appreciate you taking that time. So Don, I'm kind of curious, what are folks saying about Midwest murder these days? Nancy Cal gave us four stars. Good material, too much banter. Ooh, no, I'm just uh, four stars. No, it's okay. We got four stars. We're banterers. I love, just, it, I love it when is people what it is. insult us, but they still give us like four stars. It's it's so funny. It makes me She's going to go back and yeah. change this to a one star <laughs> I, now. I know, I, I'm not going to call it out anymore. I'm from North Dakota, so enjoy this podcast. But personally, I prefer one person podcast. Bantering gets old. Tend to repeat everything. Don, you have a fabu- fabulous podcast voice as I'm like. You're stuttering Like I'm over stuttering it? over oh, my boy. words. Uh, hope to hear you on more. On, hope. Hi. Really? Like, I feel like she should take Deep this breaths. back. Hope to hear you more on other shows. Don got there. a compliment in this one. And, and I'm like, panicked. oh my gosh, I know what's happening. Uh, I had to quit listening when the guy called it Anastasia instead of anesthesia. Oh, that man. was you. That's, you know, that's, that was just a little slip. It's not, that shit happens. You try reading thousands and thousands and thousands of words all the time. I really just try. I'm a little insulted. <laughs> I'm more insulted that Nancy Cow just discarded the guy. You know, like, <laughs> like if somebody, it's like, oh, that chick, you know, like the guy. Last night at, at our show in Grand Forks. I'm a person. When, when um, we, we read it and I, it was a good one. Thank, thank God it was a good one. Um, and she's like, that was mine. <laughs> it, was, it was very weird. So Nancy Cal, I hope you're not here tonight because we, I just butchered your, your review. Uh, the next one is the Ninja Refrigerator. Great I don't even, name. I don't even care what the rest of it is about. He's got the best name or she. Uh, five stars. Midwest Murder is fantastic. I've never been able to get into podcasts before, but Don and Jonah put on an amazing show that my wife and I are both addicted to. It's super cool to see a podcast from mine in North Dakota, too. Oh. That's nice. Well, that's very yeah. nice. Thank yeah, you. I like that. And that's I think that's really neat when you can be, we can be somebody's entry point into, into podcasts. That's well, kind, you're just kind that of a guy, cool honor. So. Yeah. yeah. Hey, we want to give a big shout out to Shots Crossroads, our amazing sponsor. And a, rem- a reminder, if you're on the road and you're in Minot, you can swing by Shots in the morning. They've got breakfast sandwiches, hot and ready to go, salads, wraps. There's desserts in the deli cooler, and they always have great deals on their energy drinks. I- I- I'm an energy drink person at some points in the day, and I-, I like that they give you that two for four deal all the time. And it's if, always I have consistent. a question. Are you, yeah. Am I listed as a beneficiary for your life insurance policy no. when, you, when you die no. from those things? No. Okay, no. just curious. I drink the healthy ones. Don okay. Palumbo. All okay. Right. The all natural. 
But friendly faces, social atmosphere, and a consistent product is what you get at Shots Crossroads. So I, I, I really love going there. I know I'm going to get a great meal, crispy chicken strips, crispy fries, and Shots delivers. Whether it's pie, soup, you want ranch, you want gravy, mushroom Swiss burger, Shots will deliver it consistently just as they have for 45 years. Family owned and operated and they got cheaper prices on gas most of the time compared to their competitors. Fries with ranch and gravy. Boom. And bread pie. Yum. Done. Banana cream pie for me. That's so good. Shout out. You can never go wrong with that at Shots. You can also buy Midwest Murder a hot dish. Essentially, kind of just give us some extra financial support by visiting us at buymeacoffee.com slash Midwest Murder. It helps us pay for the different things that keep this podcast functioning. And you can stay current with Midwest Murder live events and special announcements by following, uh, following us on Facebook and Instagram. We do have a pretty big show coming up in Fargo at Fargo Brewing Company. We've been booked with Jade Presents. It's a huge hallmark in our career in Midwest Murder. So if anybody's going to be in the Fargo neighborhood the end of September on the 30th, come check us out at Fargo Brewing Company. Tickets are selling out fast on that. And I see some cool t-shirts out there tonight. You can catch our merchandise available at tpublic.com slash stores slash Midwest Murder. There's a link to the store right on our Facebook. We also have some new designs coming out too. So yeah, check it out yeah. for some new designs. Or because if you ever have a cool design idea, idea. for mm-hmm. us, send yeah. it our way. We're into that. Yeah. We say some stupid shit on here, apparently more than once and ah. people want, people want them to be there. And so yeah. sometimes <laughs> the stupid shit we say is funny and t-shirt worthy, but we just need to be reminded of that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. We're, we're too humble to be like, oh yeah, let's put that one on a t-shirt. I don't know. I, I went with the legs and hospitals one. I was, yeah. there, we, okay, one was of our, good. one of our t-shirts in, in the, in the merch store is uh, the only thing open after midnight are legs and hospitals. So yep. it's true. Except, except now we're all getting really old and it's 2 a.m. Who, who closes a bar at 2 a.m.? Oh, I'm too, I'm too me. old for it. Not too old me. for it. I'm about a 10 p.m. bedtime. <laughs> Our story today takes us back to 1992. What a year for music. 1992 gave us, among many others, the songs Baby Got Back. Oh, I, my first rap song <laughs> that I knew from like end to end. It, the, the, Probably a lot of us. I could start right now. Oh. We got Under the Bridge, Tears in Heaven, Jump. I'm Too Sexy, Achy Breaky Heart, November Rain, Life is a Highway, Smells Like Teen Spirit, Friday I'm in Love, and of course, Who Could Forget Everything About You by Ugly Kid Joe. I think a lot of people actually forgot about No that, one forgot about I th- that. I think they, I think they did. Um, quick question, Jump, are we Are we talking like crisscross? Crisscross, jump, jump? yes, okay. Jump, Jump, or, you know, wearing I mean, your pants backwards yeah, and all that yeah, good yeah, stuff. Yeah, that was something. Cartoon Network launched. The Mall of America opened in August of 1992. Bill Clinton became president. And probably what I miss most about 1992, the average cost of one pound of bacon was $1.92. Wow. Yeah, I miss those days. DNA fingerprinting is invented. The LA riots. In 1992, CDs surpassed cassette tapes as the preferred medium for recorded music. And the best films of the year included Reservoir Dogs, Unforgiven, Wayne's World, Aladdin, White Men Can't Jump, Death Becomes Her, Malcolm X, The Last of the Mohicans, and Captain Ron. Captain Ron. I had to Mom, throw Captain the boat's Ron on fire. <laughs> Captain <laughs> Ron, probably not one of the best films of the year, but damn it, I liked Captain Ron. It's, it, it holds a special place in my heart. Um, uh, yeah. Kurt I, Russell. I'm ready to go like relive 92 for the bacon and the movies and the music. In 1992, 
The city of Lincoln, Nebraska was just three years into a massive population boom that saw the city grow from 191,972 people in 1990 to 225,581 by the year 2000. That's more than 33,000 people. Today, it's just over 286,000. And there are stories going back decades that tout Lincoln, Nebraska as one of the best places to live. Lincoln is not only thriving, it's safe, a place where parents can feel comfortable allowing their children to walk to school. The Metropolitan State Capitol is also home of the University of Nebraska, a top-tier national research university considered a leader in higher education and a reputable NCAA Division I athletics program. Their football team, the Cornhuskers, made it to the 1992 Orange Bowl, ultimately losing to Miami. The Cornhuskers played what many fans consider one of their most important games of all time and one of the loudest against Colorado on October 31st that year. But that was hardly Lincoln's most notable event in the fall of 1992. Hang on. Are you like I am I am like almost sitting on my hands to not like like a Cornhusker. Like anybody else? No, nobody? Eat the corn, no, no Husker fan? Okay. Is that what they do? Is Talk that their thing? Yeah. Like you, you're like, a Cornhusker fan? Don's the only one in the house tonight. That's fun. It's a fun place to be. <laughs> yeah. So not, not the most notable event in the fall of 92. Arthur McElroy walked into his classroom in Ferguson on the campus of UNL with a 30 caliber M1 carbine. Staring blankly at his classmates from behind thick framed glasses, McElroy, without hesitation, pointed his weapon and pulled the trigger, expecting to unleash a storm of bullets on his fellow students. The gun didn't fire. It was jammed. Students started running for their lives, and McElroy smashed his weapon on the ground, releasing the jammed bullet. He took aim again. The weapon still didn't fire and a panicked McElroy fled the school without accomplishing his horrific mission. He was later arrested and charged with attempted second-degree murder and three other felonies. The story of McElroy's failed shooting attempt hardly registered in the wake of what happened on September 22, 1992, less than three weeks prior, a shocking tragedy that left residents of Lincoln questioning the safety of their community for many years. At 11.40 p.m., just 20 minutes before her midnight curfew, 18-year-old Candy Harms left the house of her boyfriend, 23-year-old Todd Sears. Parting ways with a smile and a kiss, she told him sweet dreams before walking to her car, getting in, and driving off. Although this wasn't the last time Candy Harms felt the touch of another person, it was the last time she ever felt a loving embrace. Even though her parents lived just a few minutes away from Todd's downtown apartment, Candy Harms never arrived at the home she shared with her parents. When Stan Harms, her father, woke up on the morning of Wednesday, September 23rd, the first thing he did was check on his daughter. It wasn't unusual for Candy to be out later than her parents could stay awake, but Candy never missed curfew. A wave of concern, even panic, washed over Stan Harms when he discovered Candy wasn't home. He immediately called Todd Sears. It was just after 6 a.m. Concern quickly gave way to fear when Todd told Stan, Stan, she left at 1140 last night. We said goodbye, and I watched Candy get in her car and leave. 
The living nightmare for the Harms family was just beginning. Stan Harms' next move was to call the police and report his daughter missing. Police didn't immediately share the same level of concern. After all, Lincoln is a college town, and it was hardly uncommon for an 18-year-old UNL freshman to not come home one night. Stan was insistent. He knew something was wrong. This was not like his daughter, and he wasn't going to wait around without taking action. The Harms quickly formed a search party for Candy, enlisting the help of friends and neighbors, as well as her boyfriend, Todd. Their group spent the entire morning and afternoon scouring the route Candy used from Todd's house downtown to the apartment she shared with her parents at 6100 Vine Street. They gave it an amazing effort, knocking on doors and asking anyone along the route, from people walking in the streets to homeowners doing yard work, if they'd seen Candy. But it was as if Candy Harms had simply vanished. Late into the afternoon, the Harms' phone rang. Candy's mother, Pat, took the call. A farmer on the edge of town found an abandoned car in a Milo field. The vehicle was registered to Stan Harms. Now, if you have no idea what a Milo field is, don't feel bad, because neither did did I. And if you don't care to know, skip forward 15 seconds right now. But if you're curious, I'll spare you the Google. Milo seed is a type of grass grain that's used as filler in bird seed mixes. It's similar to corn, and it's often used as feed grain for livestock. And listen, I over-explain these things because if I was listening to this podcast and I heard Milo field, my brain stops in that moment as I ask myself, what the hell is a Milo field? By the time I'm done reading about it, I've missed half the story. But I digress. That's usually what I do. Yeah. That's, no, usually, I had, my, I, I that's digress. usually my spot is yeah. digressing. Her real nickname was actually Don Digress Palumbo. Yeah, it's, it's not. An, it's, it, he actually did give me that's that. That's a real and, one. And it's, it's not insulting or anything, really. No. Yeah. Candy's car, registered to her dad, was found by a farmer on the northern edge of town next to the Milo field. That's when Sheriff Tom Cassidy was first called by Lincoln police. Cassidy drove out to the scene personally. And he told me it was very unusual for him to do that. The abandoned blue Chevy Corsica was parked in a way that led investigators to believe it was backed into the spot. Wait, Sheriff Cassidy told you? Like, yeah. Told you? Yes, I interviewed him oh. for this podcast. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, he was one of the sources I was able to very interview cool. him. He's a legend in Nebraska law enforcement. Very cool. So the car was unlocked and the passenger side door left open. Candy's keys and purse were gone, her school books all that remained in the car. There was no sign of Candy, nor was there any outward indication that harm befell her in the area. Investigators searched the field and land nearby until nightfall, turning up no additional clues. That same day, another young woman, 17-year-old Kenyatta Bush, went missing in Omaha. People couldn't help but wonder if the two were connected. The public speculation was rampant helping to fan the fires of fear that quickly spread throughout Nebraska. On Thursday, September 24th, investigation of the land surrounding Candy's car continued. Over 60 law enforcement and volunteer firefighters led the search, and the National Guard pitched in an airplane. Sheriffs brought in bloodhounds. The dogs tracked a scent that led them miles northeast of the vehicle, but all the effort turned up nothing. There was no real conclusion as to whether the animals caught candy scent or if it was something else. County sheriffs met with Omaha police to compare the cases of Candy Harms and Kenyatta Bush, but the outward similarities between the missing women were limited at best. 
Candy's disappearance absolutely shook the city of Lincoln to its core. When Patricia and Stan Harms appeared on a live TV news conference, people of the community just couldn't help but identify with the couple. They were the epitome of blue-collar, church-going, friendly, salt-of-the-earth Midwest family. A couple who worked hard all their life to provide a stable home and do everything in their power to help their children thrive. It was gut-wrenching to watch Stan Harms' televised emotional breakdown. His baby was missing, and there was no holding back the pain when he pleaded for her. On the morning of Friday, September 25th, nearly 75 friends and relatives of Candy Harms gathered for an hour-long service with almost 750 Lincoln Pius X High School students to pray for Candy, herself a former Pius X graduate. Stan Harms, who has a history of heart problems, wasn't able to make it through the entire service. Todd Sears, Candy's boyfriend, also attended, sitting with her parents and sister. I think, is that Pius X? I think it's Pius the 10th. Yes, yes, Pius the 10th. Thank you. Yeah. That, sorry, I didn't mean to Jonah you there. No, 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 that's, that makes sense. Yeah. Pius, Pius, Pius X. Pius the 10th, yeah. But, Pius I mean, 10, <laughs> Pius the 10th. Yeah. I just, it sounds good. <laughs> Pius X has a ring to it, okay? Yeah, I, I feel like, I feel like that's not it. I feel like it's no, like more, you're totally more, right. more, more popey, I think. Yeah. Okay, yeah. fair. Mm-hmm. In the weeks following the mass, Pius X High School offered students the opportunity to use their study hall or lunchtime to attend chapel and pray for Candy Harms. On several occasions, a school official had to use the public announcement system to address bogus rumors Candy Harms had been found. Investigators set up a tip line with the local Crime Stoppers group offering a $1,000 reward for information leading to the whereabouts of Candy Harms. Additional searches were carried out by volunteers on horseback in the land around Candy's abandoned vehicle. Investigators again scoured the route Candy traditionally used between Todd's house and the apartment she shared with her parents. Plenty of useless rumors came through the wire, but nothing of substance was discovered over the weekend. The vanishing of Candy Harms hung above the city of Lincoln like a shroud of fear and sadness. Stan Harms' employer printed 10,000 missing person flyers that were distributed throughout the region. For the first few weeks, there was a news conference with updates almost daily. Newspapers kept her story in constant circulation. They also shared safety tips and strategies for other women to deploy in order to protect themselves. Women walked in groups or at the very least in pairs. UNL student Angela Green said, quote, You expect this kind of thing to happen in New York or Chicago, but not Nebraska. The scary thing is that there's no reason for it to happen. You think it could be me next. Sadly, the body of Kenyatta Bush was found on Saturday, October 3rd in an Omaha dumpster. No link was ever found between her murder and Candy's disappearance. Todd Sears became very close with Candy's parents in the weeks following her disappearance. That was the boyfriend, right? Yep. Okay. Initially, as per the norm, being the boyfriend, he was viewed as a suspect until the investigation could fully clear him. Todd was willfully compliant, even voluntarily taking a lie detector test, which he passed. And he remembered their last evening together. The couple watched Coach, Roseanne, and the Atlanta Braves game while studying. Todd said even though he only knew Candy for two and a half months... It felt like they'd known each other forever. The scenarios of what might have happened to Candy played over and over in his head. His appetite was gone and he had trouble sleeping. Todd Sears never returned to school and didn't work for weeks, spending 
all of his time distributing flyers, praying with the Harms family, looking for candy. His life would never be the same. As the days depressingly wore on, the Harms were left with anger and sadness. Eventually, frustration set in. There were ponderings that perhaps Candy Harms ran away. But there was really nothing to indicate her life had the makings of a runaway. People who knew Candy said she loved life and was super happy with school and her boyfriend. Stan Harms said sometimes he hoped his daughter did run away. That way, he knew at least she was in control of her actions. In his heart, however... Stan Harms did not believe that was the case. At age 27, when his children were still young, Stan Harms battled cancer, and he won. During his fight, Stan prayed every day that he'd live to raise his daughters. His victory over cancer left him with a heart condition, but he made it. Surviving that, only to be helpless now, made it all feel so much worse for him. Quote, To not have been there, it's been pretty devastating to think I wasn't there to protect her. For Becky Harms, Candy's 20-year-old sister and only sibling, her sister's disappearance hit the hardest when sudden moments of realization that Candy isn't around anymore struck like lightning. Quote, most of the time it doesn't seem like she's gone. Most of the time it seems like she's at home or at someone else's house. The Air National Guard brought in additional aerial recon planes that flew over the area taking infrared and black and white photographs of the landscape. Nothing of substance ever came from the photos. Stores in Lincoln couldn't keep mason stock. School children walked only in groups with parental oversight. For weeks on end, the city was absolutely gripped with fear. Dozens of investigators, including a multi agency task force with the FBI pursued every possible lead. But there really wasn't anything to go on. Residents of Lincoln couldn't pick up a newspaper without seeing a Candy Harms report. When you turn on the radio or the five o'clock news, there she was. And this was, this was about the time that things were, I mean, I think we can remember as children that things were changing. You know, yeah. Jacob Wetterling was 1989. Yeah. Uh, we were a year away from, uh, from Gina Dale North. I mean, things were, things were changing. They hadn't changed yet. Like from, you know, I believe that even, as far as safety goes, yes, people right? were becoming a little bit more aware. I, think, aware. I hope yeah. They're, they're, yeah. They're, I'd like to believe it at this point. Yeah. And the outpouring of community support for the harms family was powerful, giving the family strength during their greatest time of need. The harms received hundreds and hundreds of cards from people they'd never met. Pat Harms was particularly touched by a package of handmade cards from the elementary students at St. Peter's School. And this, this whole situation, it just took its toll on the people of Lincoln. And the ripple effect is really profound when you consider it. As Candy Harms became a household name, even for children, this city had the idea and comfort of safety stolen from them. And it was a feeling that persisted with constant reminders. Throughout October... UNL students held candlelight vigils, gone but not forgotten. Volunteers continued passing out flyers, searching for candy, and sending cards to the Harms family. Candy's closest friends moved through life in a state of shock, reflecting on the last time they saw her. None of it seemed real. While progress on the case of Candy Harms faded, and with it the hope of finding her alive, another investigation in the city of Lincoln got a major lead in the month of October. 
In the fall of 1992, police and investigators in Lincoln were on edge after they couldn't stop a string of violent robberies at hotels, gas stations, and a liquor store. Then, on September 30th, a pair of devious criminals managed to pull off a $31,000 heist at the Goodyear Credit Union. When Scott Barney, a well-known petty criminal and high school dropout, was spotted around town flashing way more money than he had any right to, it caught the kind of attention low-life criminals with too much money don't want. Officer Robert Varga got the tip about Barney's cash flash on October 3rd. Detectives focused their, their attention on Scott Barney and the person he was spending most of his time with, 30-year-old Roger Bjorkland, a married man with two daughters. The more detectives Greg Sorensen and Sandy Myers looked at Barney and Bjorkland, the more it became clear these two were connected to the string of robberies. Detectives followed the men for weeks. Eventually, the investigation got a warrant to tap the suspect's phones and learned the criminals were planning another major robbery at the same credit union on December 2nd. <laughs> you heard that right. I'm sorry. Their really? stroke of genius plan was to rob the same credit union twice. I mean, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't, I don't think I'm the smartest person in the world, but like, what makes you think like after a plane crash, you know, the safest airline to fly on is the one that just crashed. Right. Because they, they've That's had the most way to look at it, but yeah, I know. Well, Oh, really? I mean, we're sitting here we're sitting on talking a murder about podcast. murder, so yeah, no, yeah then no. that's creepy. But you know what I mean? So like the, they're, they're going to, they're going to be aware of shit. Like, right. There might be I mean, uh, you'd, you'd a little, hyper, like they'd a little be ready. hypervigilant. Yeah. yeah. So I'd, I'm guessing you don't think it plays out very well for these. <laughs> if, if it does, I'm changing my career. <laughs> on December 2nd, dozens of officers surrounded the credit union waiting to ambush the robbers. But this wasn't the first rodeo of Barney and Bjorkland. The crooks were tuned in to police frequencies through their scanner and caught wind of the ambush, quickly backing off of the heist. But police were able to arrest him anyway because they were driving a stolen vehicle. On December 3rd, Bjorkland wanted to talk. And he was quick to recount details of the robberies with officers. You know, in the old gangster and mafia flicks, when some of them got arrested and they were all chummy with the police, like like chummy, like they go out for all beers, buddies, or what, like, like like all buddies in the police, like oh, I know you, you know, like that old sense of fami- familiarity. That was Bjorkland. Well, doesn't that like just happen in the Midwest? <laughs> Yeah, I always I just find it different when it's criminal and cop and yeah, okay. wasn't in the mafia. He was just a scumbag who managed to rob a few places at gunpoint and worse, much, much worse. 24 year old Scott Barney evidently got spooked while behind bars. He didn't have the faux mafia savvy of Bjorkland. Barney buckled and requested to call his attorney. Then, Scott Barney told investigators, I want to talk about another crime. It was December 6th, 1992, when Scott Barney led investigators to the shallow, snow-covered grave of Candy Harms. Her body was barely covered with dirt, calling it a shallow grave an overstatement. 
She was naked, unrecognizable, and maimed. It was mortifying. Now, someone had to relay that awful news to the Harms family. And some, that someone was none other than Sheriff Tom Cassidy. When Cassidy got word about the body, he had already begun to brace himself for that moment. He contacted the Harms and he let them know. They said, look, we've, we found something. We don't know if it's candy. And, and I want you to let me go out there and check before you come out there. Because he got word that this was not a great situation. Okay, so... So he called them before and like, what if, it, what if it wasn't her though? I mean, to let him know before the rumor got to them that there fair, was a body, yeah. he wanted to, he wanted to give them a heads up. Yeah. So he was bracing himself to bring the worst type of news to the best kind of people. Somehow word of the horrific discovery got out quickly. A news agency in Omaha ran the story that didn't hold back on the brutality of the scene. That story was then picked up by a well-known Lincoln radio station DJ and news reporter. By the time Tom Cassidy arrived at the home of Stan and Pat Harms, they had already heard the gruesome news. You know, this is where I always wonder, like when the, like when the, the journalism, the, the, I don't know, I don't know that I want to say camaraderie, but the integrity or is it maybe, I mean, like the business relationship between law enforcement and journalists, you know, when that shifts and, or when that shifted, you know, like have some, have some decency. Yeah. Well, and, and Cassidy, as he told me, he was livid. He said it was maybe the angriest he had ever been with somebody in his whole life for that, that I'm DJ. Sure. And he gave him an earful. Like he, he found, you know, he found him and he laced into him. And in, 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 in Tom even said in defense of the DJ, he picked the story up from the Omaha news agency sure. and just sure. assuming it was out there. Now it was all that, that story was out did there. They, and, and maybe I missed it, but did they actually say that it was candy harms or that it was just a, that it was, you know, I shouldn't say just, yes, they though. did say, yep. so, you know, yep. if you don't even have like, if you don't have two, two confirmations, like, you know, and, and why not just, you know, pending the news or the, the notification of family, you know, when did that start? Because yeah. it, it's have some, have some decency, have some, have, decency. Some, have some respect. And what happened, what happened to candy was a shame. The most despicable and terrible crime Tom Cassidy encountered in all his decades of law enforcement before he could brace the harms for what was to come. The world shattering news hit the airwaves faster than he could drive across town to their home. On the same day, Scott Barney led police to candy's body as Roger Bjorklund sat in jail for the stolen car and robberies feeling his life and freedom slowly beginning to slip away from him, Bjorklund demanded to speak with Detective Sorensen, one of the chief investigators on Candy's disappearance. Bjorklund loved to talk. He willingly waived Miranda rights and shared his story with investigators. While there were some differences in the stories of the two men, there was at least one grotesque detail the two men agreed on. Barney and Bjorklund knew they wanted to rape a woman that day. Oh. It, was, it was something the two men discussed while reflecting on their crime, their crime streak and the eventuality of getting caught. They figured prison wasn't far off, so why not fulfill their fantasy of abducting and raping some poor woman? So they've robbed a bank, 
and then thought knocked eh, over a couple of gas stations and liquor stores. It's, it's fine. It's fine. We'll just, we'll just, we'll just do this. So they were going to go, you know, rob the same spot twice. Then what? Rape another person? Like, come on. I. Yeah, it, the thought of them sitting there thinking, well, we've robbed a bunch of shit. The cops are onto us. We might as well kidnap and rape some poor lady. Well, and how does that even come up? Like, like. Weirdo, hey, I want to be a sexual talking, predator. Weird criminals talking about their weird fantasies. The two men spent most of that September day, the 22nd, the day of Candy's disappearance, prowling the streets of Lincoln for a victim. They hunted the streets. Candy wasn't the, their first choice, but each of the women who the men stalked before Candy managed to unknowingly escape the two predators. When Bjorkland and Barney spotted Candy driving alone, they decided to follow her, tailing Candy until she parked just outside her parents' apartment. And this is, this is where I'm absolutely terrified for my children, for myself. It, it, it's the, it's the, the predators that hunt, that, that hunt for the people in the, you know, the same, you know, the, the, the same story of, you know, of our beloved teacher in Sydney, Montana, right? They just wanted to rape and kill someone. And, and how did you draw the, the, the short straw? You know what? Like it is so random and violent and senseless. I mean, it's not random on their part, but to be that, that victim, you know, oftentimes, and we've talked about this so often that most people are killed by somebody they know. They know that's, right. that's the reality of murder. Yeah. This is, this is when it and scares, this, this, this is, is when it this scares is, me to my core. Yes. It was Roger B. Orkland who approached Candy's vehicle. He did so under the guise of being a police officer. He had on a makeshift blue outfit and carried a large police-like radio scanner. Bjorkland forced his way into the car, subduing Candy with a burst of violence and then quickly driving off. It happened in seconds and within eye shot of her parents' home. Candy, I had, she had no idea what hit her. And that's, that's why it's okay to be skeptical. When, when someone, even if they claim to be law enforcement, I, I mean, obviously, you know, I, I mean, use some, use common sense there. And I'm, I'm not blaming candy, not at all. I'm, I'm, I'm using this as awareness. Yes. I, I mean, I think hypervigilance is important. Good grief. You just don't know. Driving candy Chevy Corsica, Bjorkland followed Scott Barney to the location at the field where candy's car was abandoned. The men wrapped her hands and head in duct tape, stuffed her into Barney's vehicle, and drove to a location at 84th and Havelock Street. Scott Barney left to fill the car with gas, leaving Candy Harms in the sadistic hands of Roger Bjorkland. Bjorkland, a father of two young daughters whose wife runs a daycare, started in slowly on Candy, using a knife to poke and prod, touching her however he wanted while quoting violent film scenes. His sadism continued until Barney returned. Then Bjorkland watched Candy scream as Scott Barney raped her. The men spent several hours sexually assaulting and, tor and torturing poor Candy Harms. Oof. She was cut up, stabbed, and intimate parts of her body were removed with a knife. So, wow. I, 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 um, his wife had a daycare. 
People, yeah. people sent their children to, to this His man's house. home. Yeah. After the atrocious acts of sadism were finished and the two monsters had their fill, they drove Candy to the field near 134th Street and Yankee Hill Road just outside of Lincoln. Once there, Bjorklund put Candy in a chokehold while removing her from the car and then began marching her into the field. Bjorklund stumbled and fell on top of Harms. When he got up, Barney shot Candy Harms twice in the head with a 380 caliber semi-automatic pistol. They left her for dead in the field, returned to their vehicle, and drove away. The killers didn't get far before realizing they left behind evidence. A blanket, Candy's personal items they might have touched. Barney turned the car around and Bjorklund walked out to Candy's body to retrieve their blanket. When he got there, Bjorklund heard Candy Harm still spasming and gasping for air. So he fired five rounds from his 38 caliber revolver into her body. Quote, it seemed humane. Oh. Now, now you have a, an ounce of humanity. No, he doesn't. Bjorklund and Barney then took the blanket and harm's clothing and personal belongings back to the site of the assault and they burned everything. Their guns, knives, and extra ammunition were thrown into Pawnee Lake. Two days later, Bjorklund and Barney returned and buried harm's body in a shallow grave a short distance from where they shot her. For two and a half months, the Harms family and the greater Lincoln community at large hoped and prayed for the best. Sadly, the truth was much darker than any person deserves. Scott Barney immediately took a plea deal to testify against Bjorkland and avoid the death penalty. Bjorkland went on to make 13 separate statements telling of all his awful deeds and crimes. He enjoyed calling detectives into, into the jail so and that he could talk to them and get a little bit of attention and they'd bring him things. It was a big, cool deal for him. And he was, he was the daycare parent, correct? Yes. Yeah. And Barney was, he, was he the... Barney the, was the younger guy who buckled first and then sure. yeah, he took the plea but, deal. But Barney wasn't the, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies guy? No. Right? No? Okay. So it was no. Bjorkland. Yep. So... I'm not, I mean, I'm not speculating, but I'm curious, like Bjorkland must be, he must be the mastermind behind this. I, I would have to guess. He certainly, I mean, he's I mean, the older Scott, man. Scott yes. Barney's a piece of shit too. Scott, no, Scott Barney's a like, piece of shit, but Bjorkland was, he was in charge between mm -hmm. these two men for yeah. sure. Yeah. Yes. There's always a leader. Yep. On Saturday, December 12th, the Harms family was finally able to bid farewell to their daughter. The community support behind Stan and Pat Harms was truly incredible, even uplifting during such a tragic time. Candy's service was held at St. Mary's Catholic Church, where she attended grade school. There were more than 750 people at her service, which was officiated by Reverend Paul Witt. Todd Sears sat with Candy's family. Many of the people in attendance wore buttons with Candy's photo. Many of those people still have those buttons, including Tom Cassidy still has that button. Reverend Witt asked those in attendance to remember that some prayers were answered. At the Mass held shortly after Candy's disappearance, someone offered a prayer that whoever was involved would have a change of heart. Quote, This was a situation that left us, left all of us in mystery. We could not figure it out. There was just no trace, no clue as to what was going on, and someone had a change of heart. That prayer has been answered. Witt offered there is something worse than going to hell. First, Reverend Witt mentioned being 
imprisoned on earth by never repenting for one's sins, then dying and burning in the fires of hell. Despite the circumstances, Witt said, Candy Harms had a happy death because she died in relationship with the Lord. Death is only temporary. This farewell was only as far as this life goes. In other words, we'll see Candy again. Her body's here, but Candy lives on. A memorial was held at UNL Nebraska on Monday, December 14th. Many students shared poetry, memories, and other writings. Todd Sears encouraged people not to be angry by what happened to Candy, but to channel their love into making the world a better place. Sadly, life isn't, quote, sadly, life isn't forever, but love is. In that regard, Candy can live with each of us forever. UNL Women's Center director Judith Chris said Candy was, quote, Candy was, quote, every woman, our worst fears and our greatest hope. That's pretty, uh, that, that sums it up. English professor Jim McShane spoke on behalf of UNL faculty and said the community has a long way to go before debasement of women no longer occurs and said society can function only when everyone is allowed to function at his or her full ability. Stan Harms spoke shortly before Candy's favorite song, Can't Cry Hard Enough, was played as a final tribute. He recalled Candy's love of children and how she wanted to learn to fly especially after seeing the Blue Angels perform. Quote, I guess right now I can honestly feel that Candace has wings and is flying higher than those Blue Angels ever thought of. Bjorklund and Barney were charged with first-degree murder, with Barney ultimately taking the plea deal and Bjorklund pleading not guilty. No, he would. Of course. He's arrogant enough. He's, he's, he's yeah. shitty enough. Yeah. Man. In addition to the statements from each man, investigators found weapons in the lake, as well as the remains from their efforts to burn Candy's personal belongings. Due to an exorbitantly long series of suppression hearings and other efforts to delay trial by Bjorklund and his attorney, Bjorklund didn't go to trial until October 25th, 1993. A change of venue was requested due to publicity. But instead of relocating, the trial judge ordered jurors to be brought in from the other side of the state, Sydney, Nebraska. The trial itself was a massive ordeal, widely publicized with cameras and guards everywhere. You know what I've noticed? It's um, I, I'm sure it might just be a tactic. I, I have no idea. But, you know, how many times uh, a, a change of venue is, is requested and every, nearly every single time. I mean, you know, obviously not all the time, but nearly every single time it, it's denied yeah. because it's like, well, what are you in do? this day and age, what do you do? I, I mean, it's, I thought it was interesting in this one. I don't recall any time previously encountering one of these where they brought in jurors from another yeah, city. I don't think we have I've never encountered that yet. So that was kind of interesting. Bjorklund appeared to indulge in every moment of infamy. Partway through the trial, several jurors got anonymous letters threatening to harm them and their families if they didn't convict Bjorklund. Yeah, it's probably the daycare children parents, and I can't blame them. Like, <laughs> frick, I'd write one too. Like, yeah. Investigators actually linked the letters to Bjorklund himself. Oh, come on. Are you serious? 
Serious. This creep used rubber gloves to type the letters in jail and tricked the minister into delivering them to the Cornhusker Hotel where the jurors were staying. Okay, first of all, how did he get rubber gloves? For one. I mean, I didn't realize contraband, but come on. And then secondly, if you are a, a person of the cloth, do not take a bundle of letters and deliver them to some hotel. Yeah, like, come on. A bit of a, I don't know what that minister Good was thinking. grief. So it, what, what's really intense about this, obviously Bjorklund's goal was to cause a mistrial. And the jurors, they were absolutely terrified, but they didn't find out that it was actually Bjorklund and that there was no real threat until the trial was over. It lasted 13 days. They couldn't tell the jurors that Bjorklund did that because then it would taint the trial. Then that well, would exactly. actually create I, the mistrial. Either that way, he it wanted. could have been a mistrial. Yeah. That was I mean, 13 days of fear, 13 days of believing their lives were in danger, or the lives of their family as they were sitting there trying to prosecute or be on trial. I mean, I, I will say that piece of garbage is smart. It, I, I mean, he's... You can't discredit that not, one. Not smart in the right way, but smart, you know? Quote, it was pretty scary, said one juror, Hobson. I had a daughter in kindergarten. I didn't know if her life would be in danger. After the jury eventually convicted Bjorkland, Tom Cassidy gave each of them a manila envelope of newspaper clippings. Quote, I knew they'd be interested in knowing the rest of the story. He really does seem like a like a... a, a interesting guy, I, uh, Sheriff Cassidy. I, I, I might just as, as an aside separately release my full interview with him because it was really interesting and it, it was just a lot for me to cut in what mm -hmm. he sure. actually said as opposed to just use information I learned in the interview with him. It's super nice guy. Two years after Candy disappeared, that juror, Hobson, drove back to Lincoln to watch the judge sentence Bjorkland to death. The appeals went on for years including one that centered on a short prayer the judge said with jurors at the start of the trial. Evidently, in the jury room, Judge Endicott took care of several housekeeping matters and then asked the jurors, whoever wished to join hands, to do so and bow their heads. Judge Endicott then said, quote, God be with us. His voice cracked, and he left the jury room. So they wanted... They, they wanted uh they obviously use that in appeal then. Yeah. Bjorklund suggested that moment ruined his right to a fair and impartial trial. Right. It was that, it was that moment. I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. The appeal sure. was denied. Yeah. Yeah. Then a few years later, UNL professor, Dr. Carl Reinhard came under fire for the mishandling of indigenous remains. Bjorklund saw another opportunity and launched an appeal claiming professor Reinhard mishandled the remains of Candy Harms. His lawyer said all forensic evidence relating to the body of Candy Harms was tainted because the professor kept her remains in an unsecured office. They also alleged Professor Reinhard played basketball with Candy's skull and stored her remains in a cardboard box until receiving complaints about the odor, at which point... Professor Reinhardt removed. Oh, okay, the box. I I realize you have more to this part, but you know you could have you could have ended at the unsecured office, but then you said that they played played basketball with with her skull. That's what I mean. That's the allegations of 
Bjorklund and his people. Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah. Like, did he write that himself or yeah, did I mean, he pay he, an attorney to do you, so? He's because... fucking around at this point. You just know it's a joke to him, you know? Like, well, and I'm... To say that shit, really? First of all, how disrespectful, I mean, to everybody involved and logistically speaking, with the utmost respect to the victim, it's not going to play basketball well. No. No, it's I, I can't imagine there's a lot of bounce in the skull. Thank oh. you. That's what I was trying to avoid saying. I, but I, yeah. yeah. And I, again, I, I mean that with the utmost respect, but, you know, logistically, biologically, uh, yeah. medically speaking, nothing about it not lends bounce. itself well. Right. But I don't, I he's don't, making he's making a mockery of things. Yes, is what he he's is. Trying oh, to it do. totally is. Yeah. And the appeal also alleged that the forensic exam was conducted in a quote slipshod fashion that was at odds with standard forensic practices. The filed affidavit cited interviews with UNL faculty members who testified they saw the mishandling of Candy's remains by Reinhard. Were they a part of the basketball game? <laughs> like that one also crash landed. Reinhard did hang, get hang, into some legit on, trouble, on. but uh, one second. Yeah. Um, what does slipshod mean? I mean, I'm a, I'm a fan of words and, 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 uh, yeah, that was, that and, was their and, word. Yeah, and, that, and gubernatorial, like octogenarian. Those are really, really fun words. Slipshod is, it's means you, it, it lacked thought or organization. You didn't care. You didn't give a shit about what you were doing. Basically. Well, I, I give, I give the three points for a fun word, but yeah. I take away 640 for being a dumb, 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 dumb. While sitting on death row, Roger Bjorklund vigorously continued his fight against being sentenced to death and never stopped fighting for a new trial. Lisa Knopp is an author, an associate professor of English at the University of Nebraska at Omaha, and she's also a death row abolitionist. Lisa wrote the book From Your Friend, Carrie Dean, Letters from Nebraska's Death Row, the book began in 1995, or the story began for her in 1995, and lasted more than 20 years. Now, of course, there's a reason I brought up her book, a couple of them actually. First, in an astonishing coincidence, this author was neighbors with the Bjorkland family. Roger and his wife rented their home from the church where they all attended together. Lisa's son played, played with the Bjorklund's daughters in their yard at their house. She spoke with Bjorklund's wife quite a few times, even during the weeks after Candy's disappearance. Roger's wife was excited about a new fruit diet she started and they were moving into a better house soon. Beyond the shock of learning that her son was playing in the yard of a thief, rapist, and sadistic murderer, what scared Lisa Knopp the most about Roger Bjorklund upon learning this news that he was a murderer was just how unremarkable of a man he seemed when Lisa met him. In 1996, Mrs. Bjorklund divorced Roger, moved from the area with their two daughters, and changed their last name. Oh, good. I was really, really waiting for some update there. Like, that's... Yeah. Death row inmate Carrie Dean exchanged several letters about Bjorkland with Lisa Knopp. Carrie wrote, quote, Roger hated Christians and always spoke bad of God, Christians and everything in between heaven and hell. I did not know him that much. No one on the row did. He was so full of hate and anger, Lisa. Really? According to Carrie, Roger wanted to give up on his appeals and just be executed 
but he chose not to out of concern for his daughters. His daughters, according to Roger Bjorklund, were the reason he continued fighting his death sentence. Okay. That's his reason for living. That's his reason for fighting. Fighting. The, the, right, right. That's his reason for this fighting. A, this um, is a guy who sadistically tortured a woman. Sure, sure. And, and poked holes in a woman yeah. while she was living. Yeah. Um, while his two daughters were at home. Yeah. As, as they awaited to attend daycare with the daycare kids that came to his house. Um, well, He's you know, out in the field cutting up some right, poor woman. right. I'm really, I'm really, really glad that, uh, yeah, at least he's he's got something to live for, something to fight for. Oh my, oh my gosh! It's like f him. It's just so, yeah. You know that? You know that? Um, that part of uh, we didn't start the fire. Uh, the the video and Billy Joel is like, you know, he he. It's the the peak of the song, and he like flips yes. the table over. If these microphones weren't yours, I'd be just all angry about it. Like, oh I, my gosh. That is righteous and justifiable angry. Uh, a district judge went on to award the estate of Candy Harms $35 million in the civil trial against Barney and Bjorkland. Todd Sears eventually returned to full-time work at the Lincoln Star Journal in their advertising department. Over time, he fell in love with a co-worker. And once Todd proposed, Pat Harms threw them a wedding shower. She and Stan became godparents to Todd Sears' first son. I know, yeah. Over time, the Harms family moved away from the memories of Lincoln and enjoyed their later years as grandparents. In 2001, Roger Bjorkland was still sitting on death row when he suddenly died from a heart attack, brought on by an undiagnosed heart disease and diabetes. He was found in his cell at just after 1 a.m., incoherently mumbling at staff. He was taken to a nearby hospital where he died a short time later. His death was as unremarkable as he was. Yeah, yeah. Following Bjorklund's death, Judith Chris, she was the director of the Women's Center at UNL during Candy's disappearance. She directed the center for six years. Um, Judith gave the following quotes and reflections in an interview with the Lincoln Star Journal, a day when 250 people marched on the campus in protest of violence against women. Quote, I had just started the job and it hit hard what the Women's Center was all about. Violence against women became very, very real. Unfortunately, the world really hadn't changed much in the 10 years since Candy's disappearance, said Chris, calling out the recent conviction of a Chicago man who beat and raped a nine-year-old girl, forced roach poison down her throat, and left her for dead. Quote, maybe Bjorklund's dead, but the evil is still here. When will it stop? Sources for today's episode, the special interview with former Sheriff Tom Cassidy. 20 years later, people still remember Candy Harms by Margaret Reist. The book from your friend Carrie Dean by Lisa Knopp. The Lincoln Star Journal. Stories by John Rood, Margaret Reist, Butch Mabin. The Fremont Tribune. Court documents from caselawfinelaw.com. Thedailynebraskan.com. And the timeline thepeopleofhistory.com, infoplease.com, and mthenumbers.com slash market. This episode of Midwest Murder was written by Joan Alanto and produced by the Good Talk Network. Please do find us out there on social medias. Rate, review, subscribe. Sharing is caring. 
Thank you very much, Velva. Thank you. 